Before we get into the text today, let's uh, pray. And uh, we're also thankful for our sister, Kimberly Baldwin, for coming back from Serbia, too. Glad you didn't stay over there. Larry, we're glad you didn't stay over there. We're glad you both came back. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are good to us in ways that we cannot comprehend, that we do not understand, that we often do not recognize. We thank you for choice servants that we have that are serving you all over the world, all over our country, state, town. We miss them when, we're, when they're gone, and we're thankful when they return. Thank you for your traveling mercies. And just the incredible benefit and gift it is that someone connected to us at this local level is saying, look to Jesus, look to Jesus at an international level. It's just, Lord, what a gift. And the way we can travel now and communicate now and Viber and Signal and all those different things, it is a gift and we're thankful. Lord, thank you as we dig into this text today. May you open blind eyes in this room. May those who you have opened our eyes rejoice in you. Amen. One of my favorite memoirs, and I like to read anything, cereal box, any of it, uh, but I love reading memoirs. I like hearing what people went through and how they dealt with this and how they interacted with that. And so if you have a good memoir of anybody, let me borrow it and I'll read it, I promise. But one of my favorite one is a one that is one that might not interest a bunch of you, but it, it might, it's probably in my top five list. It's called Memoirs of an Ordinary Pastor. It's written by D.A. Carson about his dad. And those of you that know American theology know that D.A. Carson is probably one of the biggest names, top five, top eight in conservative theology in the United States, and certainly in Canada. He is a Canadian citizen. Um, so he wrote this book about his dad, Tom. And here is D.A. Carson, a, a, a big-name guy, uh, but his dad was not. But he was a faithful man, a really, really faithful man. Tom grew up in Ottawa, mostly English-speaking capital of Canada. In the 1940s, he was led to do missions work across the river into Quebec. Uh, D.A. Carson, his son, calls it medieval Roman Catholicism that was practiced there in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and up into the 80s. Indulgences were openly sold. People were walking on their knees up cathedral steps. Protestant pastors were harassed and imprisoned at times. Um, D.A. Carson actually has a 1995 Time Magazine article where a French-Canadian woman was quoted as saying, I've never met an English-speaking Canadian, but I'm sure they're as nice as other foreigners, which I thought was really, really interesting. You talk about culture and thinking, and Tom is there in the 1940s. So grindingly slow evangelism. Carson recalls visiting 3,000 homes, 3,000 homes, before he got a couple people to do a Bible study with. Hundreds and hundreds of hours. Churches of 15 people, 20 people, 30 people, back down to 15 people. People left. Things are financially tight. Few friends, few people that would even, that would even talk to him openly in that city at that time. So the question we have to ask is, why did he do it? Why did he go? Why did he go and grind and not see success? Well, he did so because he desperately wanted God's glory to be shouted from all the corners of the earth. And the earth is filled with those in rebellion. It's, it's silent at times. 
but the earth is filled with those in rebellion against him. Tom Carson also understood, as I hope we will increasingly understand, that God saves people we do not. That truly God is the one that opens blind eyes. That we are allowed to be and able to be a mouthpiece, but we do not open dead spiritual eyes. So Tom went out of obedience to the Great Commission and he stayed because he knew churches didn't rise or fall because of him, but because of Almighty God. So today's message is the second one of four about this opening of eyes, about this new birth, about this term we call regeneration. We're going to be seeing that the new birth is required because lost sinners cannot find Christ without their eyes being opened. Um, My goal today, I, I want to be encouraged, you who are sharing or praying specifically for a lost person. I want us to be encouraged, those who are doing that. I want us to be challenged, all of us, as we grow in our understanding of God's primary work, every single person in this room. And I want to be changed, you who do not not yet trust Christ as your Savior and Lord. So I have it broken down into four parts. If you have the little sheet in front of you, you might have gotten one of those from an usher. Basically kind of separated into four kind of pillars of this. So the first question is, why do we need the new birth? Is this something we even need? Is there a problem? I was born once. Do I really need to be born again? Uh, Second question, who enables the new birth? There'd be those out there that would say, well, uh, I put in some effort and God puts in some effort and today and together we we make this new thing. Is that really what the scripture teaches? So who enables this new birth? The third one is, what is the framework of the new birth? And really, when we get into that, verses five through seven, it's really a little more the framework of of salvation. But but what is the framework of, of what God is doing and what he desires? And then lastly, what connection does how I live my life with this new birth? Is it just something that I, I know in my mind and I'm thankful for it? Or does this new birth have, have, have some lasting push or results that's going to change how I live and how I think and, and what my actions are? So that's kind of how we will go through the text today. So the first question is, why do we need the new birth? Well, the question is, what are we like? And we're really going to start in verse 3. We'll look at verse 1 and 2 eventually as well. But let's start in verse 3. What are we like? It says in verse 3, For we ourselves were once foolish and disobedient and led astray and slaves to various passions and pleasures. We're passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. Now, that's that's a pretty dire list that we have right there. I think that's a list that would sober any of us. Yet if we're readers of scripture, we know there's other lists that would be more extensive and have more, there's this and there's this and this list. This is not an exhaustive list of every sin that we could possibly commit. This is really representative of what the human heart is like apart from God. And that's not to say that everybody is as sinful as they could be or as bad as they could be. Some humans sin less than others. Uh, Some parts of the world seem to have greater sin influences, both in America and outside of our country. Um, Whether it's oppression that is felt or actually sin is occurring, maybe in a public sphere or not. Some areas of our world seem to be more deeply in sin than others. Additionally, some non-Christians have treated you better this week than some Christians have. We're thankful for common grace, unconverted people who work honorably, who seek to tell the truth, who live generally moral lives, who seek to do what's right. I mean, that would be, that would be my grandparents. That would be the, the guy that sells me feed. That would be some of your spouses. 
That would be some of your children. That might be some of you in here that seek to generally do the right thing. We are thankful for God's common grace. But the truth of verse 3 hits us over and over and over. Reminded also in Jeremiah 17 that tells us, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked or desperately sick. Who can know it? What that verse is saying is we, we can't even know the depth of our sin. We had someone in the men's Bible study reference yesterday. We, only, we might only recognize one millionth of the sins that we actually commit over and over and over. And it's by God's grace that we know, how, know at least to a degree how sinful we are. But we would be overwhelmed if we knew every single thing that we do against Almighty God. But truly the heart is sick. We can't even get to the depth of our sinfulness. And the question that we often ask and we often think, even if we don't ask it out loud, is, well, can't we just do better? Or couldn't I make a better uh, resolution? Or couldn't I replace my bad friends? Or couldn't I live with better morals? Ephesians 2 is really a a strong sister passage with, with Titus 3, with some of the same thinking. And so if you want to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2, I think it'll be on the screen as well. Um, just those first five verses of Ephesians chapter 2 kind of cements in the thinking that we're getting from Titus 3. And Paul says here that you were dead in the trespasses and sins and once you watch, once walked. And I want to be clear, dead is dead. I don't know if as a kid you remember the first dead thing you saw and whether it was, you know, a family pet, hopefully more like a fish or a hamster than your beloved dog or whatever it might be, the first time you saw something dead, it stuck out to you. You probably poked it or ran to your mom or something and said, what is going on right here? And he could have used other terms than dead here, could he not have? But he used that term because that's what we are apart from Christ in our sin. We are dead in our sins and trespasses. And once we once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. It doesn't take anybody out of that list. It says this is everyone. And then like Titus, it has this but God idea. But God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, what did he do? He made us alive together with with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So we have this problem of dead. We have God. And what is he? Well, he is full of mercy and he is full of love. And then you have this remedy or solution. He made us alive. This is the idea of regeneration. This is the thinking behind, and this is the process of the new birth. As PK preached last week from John 3, unless we are born again, we will not see the kingdom of God. God is not okay with sin. We must be changed. So that's really the why. That's the why of the new birth, because every one of us without Christ is dead in sin. So the second question then is who enables the new birth? Is it a little bit of me and a little bit of him? What's going on with that? Verse four, but, right after this list of sin, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. 
This could be the, the uh, kindness and philanthropy of God. That's really how the, the Greek word fits with our idea of philanthropy, the abundance of giving, the wealth and the resources behind it, not required or expected. You know, when if you go looking for money as so many nonprofits and others do this time of year, you're looking for someone to give a generous gift out of their wealth and abundance or out of their excess or even out of their poverty, but you're looking for them to give and to give abundantly and they're not getting anything in return. And that's really what God did. The question is asked, if, if he's saying, hey, when the, go- when the goodness and loving kindness came, does that mean there was no goodness and loving kindness in the Old Testament? Well, surely not. We've got manna, and quail in the wilderness. We've got them coming into, the Israelites coming into the promised land, and, and, he, and God sets it up that as they conquer, there are houses that they don't need to build, and barns that they don't need to build, and fields that are cleared that they don't need to clear, and there's fruit trees for them to eat from. God was abundant in his goodness to the Israelites over and over in the Old Testament, not annihilating Israel or Judah, even when they deeply sinned from the kings down to the people, over and over and over in the Old Testament, the goodness and loving kindness of God, but in a really, really special way, embodied in his son Jesus in the incarnation. Some teach that this appearing, there's groups in different diverse theology that would take this verse and says, well, that happens at conversion for each person. He kind of comes in a special and unique way at conversion for each person. Um, But clearly that doesn't fit with how the verse reads. The incarnation is the only way that that fits. And our Christmas hymns get it right. Word of the Father, now in flesh appearing. The incarnation. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt his worth. Here's the value of God the Son. To save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray. Tidings of comfort at the incarnation. Matthew one twenty one, his name is Jesus. And he will save his people from their sins. Jesus would be the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew Joshua. Yahweh saves. And this is not to help the Jewish people get away from Roman tyranny. This is not to improve the Israelites' lives. This is verse 5. He saved us. Who enables the the new birth? Jesus Christ himself. And then what was the framework of this new birth as we continue on in 5 and 7? And and this framework, I kind of split it out into kind of some some why of salvation, um, some how or means of salvation, and then some some results of salvation. Um, But but don't worry about that too much. What is the what is the framework of of the new birth, starting in verse 5. It says, um, he saved us, and he gives us a not. So here's, here's, here's some, some not why. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. And the, the word righteousness can mean different things in Scripture. Sometimes this is, this is purity and holiness given to us from God. Sometimes this is just actions that represent him well. I think we could easily Uh, put this righteousness in the kind of good, moral, right behavior kind of idea. It says he saved us, but not because of good things done to us in righteousness. Good moral decisions, uh, well-doing within the culture that we live. That is not why he saved us. And it's not because we do verse 1 and 2. You know, it's not because we were submissive to rulers and authorities. It's not because we were obedient. 
It's not because we were ready for good work. Uh, he didn't save us so that we could be because we spoke evil of no one. He didn't save us because we avoided quarreling or were gentle or to show or we showed perfect courtesy to all people. That's not why he saved us. Not because we have a good family or a good church or good morals. And to our Muslim friends or our Roman Catholic friends or truly to our Baptist friends, if we are verbalizing, I'll be really good and then God will accept me, it is not because of that that God saves. But it is according to his own mercy. Remember Ephesians 2 when God said, God being rich in mercy. And Romans 4, another text that we could look at that I think well explains this. In Romans 4, um, the first four, well, we could do quite a bit here, but the first, first few verses that we have there, we could look at Abraham and we could say, if we had to do a list with the fifth and sixth grade Sunday school class, we could say, hey, let's make a list of the good things that Abraham did. Certainly we can make a list of the bad things that Abraham did as well. But let's say we make a, a list of the good things that Abraham did. We could come up with several things. Abraham had some things he could brag about if he wanted to. But what does Paul say in Romans chapter 4? He says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. But to the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And that's exactly what Paul is saying again here in Titus. It is not by works of righteousness that you have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. So that's kind of the why. It's, it's not this, and it is because of his mercy. How about the means of salvation? Continue on in verse 6. The, the means, I'm sorry, in verse 5, the means of salvation. It says, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. We can see in that cleansing from past, opening of eyes, Renewal for future, new life. Uh, some push this washing as baptism, but Paul really in this entire letter for sure, and certainly in this section too, is kind of pounding into our heads, it's not stuff you do. It's not stuff you do. It's not things that you think you can accomplish. It's not even outward manifestations of things. So in, in baptism, we are getting into water and we are being dunked underwater and lifted up. It's not salvific. It is an act of obedience to him. And in this, he's saying salvation is nothing of actions, nothing of yourselves, nothing that you do over and over and over. Repeatedly with Paul, salvation is not a result of ritual or works or human merit. Regeneration is God opening of spiritual eyes, imparting new life to the dead. And I'm going to reread the passage from Ezekiel that PK had read last week because we, we must, as we, as we think through the new life, and the opening of eyes and regeneration. So Ezekiel 36, it's very connected to John 3, but also connected to Titus 3 as well. And what does the prophet say there? He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, 
and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit will be put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And you might hear that and think, okay, I need to read that a few more times together. But look at what God is doing and the action that God is doing and the work that God is doing behind the scenes that we don't even recognize. Uh, An early, early church father, John Christostom, explained it this way. He says, this is how we need to understand regeneration. He says this, For as when a house is in a ruinous state, no one places props under it or makes any addition to the old building, but he pulls it down to its foundation, and he rebuilds it new, all new. So as in our case, God has not repaired us, but has made us anew. We have this terrible tornado went through west of us, right? And I, I assume many of you, as, as we did, uh, you know, we didn't have electricity, and phones didn't work, and it turns out people, relatives from other parts of the country were calling and trying to find out if we were doing okay, and you know, I think of Mayfield as quite a ways away. But um, then you look at the devastation our daughter was sending from Bowling Green, and, and um, a little tornado went by by uh, just a few miles from us, between us and, and uh, Gary's farm there. Missed, missed him by probably 300 yards, uh, the edge of, of his property there. And, um, but I didn't know all that was going on overnight. We had no electricity we had no phones. Everything's off. Nothing worked. And so then later you're seeing and you hear numbers of people dead and you're seeing the devastation of a small community and, you know, Hartford, the, the road from Hartford towards us, there's some huge amount of damage there. And you say, how, how I even look at that, all these huge trees just exploded on the ground and you think, how would you even begin to clean that up? Some of these houses and tobacco barns have big trees that fell on them and they're just smashed to piles of kindling. But really the picture here that he's saying is, you try to rebuild that house? Yeah, but you don't try to remodel it. Hey, let me go into this house that's smashed with trees on it and, and knock down here and I'm just going to repaint it or I'm going to put new drywall or, you know, I think I need to do some electrical work here. Maybe I'll fix that up a little bit. That, that is us without Christ. It's not like, hey, I'll do a little bit better and then I'll be good with God. Picture the house with a tornado that's knocked down to nothing but some cement foundation. It gets completely rebuilt and that is new life in Christ. God taking dead people and saying, I'm going to open your eyes to see my beauty and, and, and then you will see the call and then I'll bring you to myself and you need to respond and there's repentance and faith. Not, that, not just, let me, let me do a little painting on this house here. Let me stick a couple two-by-fours underneath, uh, underneath the roof over here. I thought of a few different people in church that I could share about, and I really thought there's probably 50 people right now I could say, hey, let me tell you this, their, their salvation testimony. And, and I could go mine or my family or others, but uh, Joe Saulwester's one that as I was praying about it and working, God just kept bringing it to my mind. So I told him before the service, hey, I'm going to share your salvation testimony with people. And he said, cool. Uh, Joe grows up west of town. And we were in a Bible study group together, so I know him pretty well. Grew up west of town. He had a pretty moral, pretty kind family. Went to a church. There were some good things in the church, probably some not good things in the church. But he, at some point, drifts away, leaves, 
knew a lot of the religious stuff, probably knew the Bible some. Gets married, raises his family, works hard. He's considered an honorable guy. Years passed and years passed. He marries Alicia. They're coming here to church. I think they're in that room right over there. And they'd be having the Lord's table. And he would, people would be around the table remembering the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And Joe, as a pushing middle-aged man will say, was sitting on the, he was not at the table, he was on the outside. He was actually sitting by like some of the kids and stuff. And some of you probably remember that in here. I wasn't going here at that time. And he was saying to himself while he sat there, I'm not part of Christ. My, I, I'm, I'm not part of Christ. And God was using those kind of circumstances to open his eyes to his need for the Savior. Jesus opened Joe's spiritual eyes and Joe repented and believed, given new life in Christ. And I think the question we have for us today is, where are, are you in this? And you could be thinking, I've loved Christ for decades and praise the Lord for that. And I, but I know there's others in here. You've heard the truth of the scripture. You may be like Joe, have been in church in and out your entire life. Will you trust him today? Even some of you teenagers, we talked in Sunday school today about the deity of Christ. He is fully God and fully man. If we take even a little bit of his deity away in our minds, we're making something that he is not, and we are spitting in his face and in rebellion against him. Will we trust him today? We see the devastation of tornadoes, and thankfully we live in a world where we're protected from so much. You read, it wasn't, many years ago when if you got this sickness or that sickness, you were just going to die. Where if you have a bad bone break, you're probably going to get infection and die. Where if you're in childbirth enough times, your chances are you're probably going to die. We live at a time so, so, so blessed with medical gifting and health and all, the, all those kind of things. But you see the devastation of a tornado and even that little one that went by our house and it was four miles away it was pretty breezy at our house and chunks of tin are flying around. And you, I mean, you see power in a way that we weak little humans can't even comprehend. And those people in Mayfield that passed away, they weren't thinking 48 hours ahead of time a tornado was gonna come through here and I'm gonna die. And so I would just challenge everyone in here, respond to him while you may. Call on him while he is near. He turns no one away. Look to him and look to him today. And what are the results of salvation? Boy, it has some beautiful terms right here. It says this regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly or abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. You look at some of these terms, that idea of justified, of, of the God of the universe just slamming that gavel down and said, righteous, righteous. That's what he does for any of those who turn to him. That idea of being an heir. And you might come from a family that there was a lot of ugliness in the family, or maybe you came from a family where it was just a, a beautiful relationship with your parents or grandparents and extended family. I, I don't know your circumstances. But when God Almighty says, I will make you my heir, you are my child. He does not unmake you his child. You are his child. 
Regeneration is a strong answer to those that believe one can lose their salvation to become, have unopened eyes after receiving opened eyes. The work of Jesus Christ in conversion. The idea of being declared righteous in the sight of God with justification and losing that doesn't fit at all with what the Bible teaches. Um, Questions you might have. You might say, well, why in this section of Titus is there nothing on faith? Uh, why is there nothing on repentance in here? Is, is God just tractor beaming me around and I have, I have no say in this? What, what is going on? You, you might be asking. I think that's a fair question. Um, first of all, we need, to, we need to remember that no passage of Scripture is written as a theology book. So no passage or even book of the Bible is written so there's everything there is to know about Jesus in this book of the Bible. But we are given all of Scripture together by God to come to that understanding. So oftentimes in Scripture, you'll see a section where it'll say, hey, repent, repent, repent. And it might not reference anything about faith. And, and the opposite of that can happen. We can have sections that talk about faith and don't talk about repentance. But we know as we have the totality of Scripture, these are both right there. This idea of regeneration is not in every passage that's connected to salvation or connected to new life. Um, there's lo- several sections that it's involved with, but clearly not even the majority of them. But, but you look at how they all fit together, and that's the word we've been given. So just as an example of that, because I think that helps us, our, our biblical theology will kind of push us, because sometimes we have a tendency of saying, well, I, I just need this verse that I memorized, and, and that's what I know about Jesus, and that's enough. But really, all of Scripture is enough, right? And so, so think of this as an example. If you look at just the, the life of John Mark, not a major guy in Scripture, if you will, but if you look at um, Acts 12, John Mark's mom's house is, is used for the disciples to meet in. Then you go a few verses later in Acts 12, then he's uh, beginning to be a missionary, then, uh, or maybe a missionary's helper. Then you fast forward a few chapters, and he is a bad missionary, apparently. He leaves them, abandons them, doesn't stay with them. Uh, You fast forward a little bit more and you see, oh, uh, one, Barnabas wants him back and Paul does not. And then you see a little while later that John, Mark, and Barnabas do go off onto a missions trip. And then Paul goes off with Silas. And you're thinking, "Eh, I don't know about this guy. But then you fast forward a little bit more and two different times Paul's in jail and he says, hey, this John Mark guy is valuable to me. I, I need him. And then we see John Mark wrote the second book of the Gospels, right? So the totality of it together, you see here's God's work in this man's heart and life. And you see it up and a down, but he he's, he's returns and finishes life looking to Christ. But we need to see all of it to have an accurate understanding of John Mark. And, and such with salvation, read it all together. It all fits together. Don't just carve out little parts of it. Um, you also might say, um, I'm a Christian, and I don't recall being regenerated. I think that's a, a fair question as well. I will tell you, I, I don't recall God regenerating me. I don't recall how and why and what when my eyes were opened. So you might say that as well. You might say, I saw my sin. I saw my need for Jesus. I desire to be forgiven. I trust in his work on the cross to save me. And to that, I would say, yes, absolutely. And guess what was going on behind the scenes? 
He was regenerating you. He was opening your eyes to even see your sin, to even see that you were dead in your sins, that you had no knowledge, recollection, or understanding of. I would say that few people see regeneration and calling while he is doing it, but he does. And we can, after salvation, read John 3 and Titus 3 and Ephesians 2 and 1 Peter 1 and other passages and say, wow, look at what God was doing. All glory be to him. And that really needs to be our response in this. I'd actually like it if you would turn with me to uh, Romans chapter 8, just to kind of finish off uh, this third point on um, kind of the, the, the nuts and bolts of uh, regeneration. Turn with me. This might be a helpful way for you to think about this. Uh, Romans 8, and um, I'm going to start reading in verse 18. So, very familiar passage to us. But if, if you think of regeneration and you think of our broken world and you think of what Christ is accomplishing, kind of think through this with me. Uh, Paul says in Romans 8, 18, for I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to this is pretty tough, futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it and hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay. Another pretty strong phrase, but instead will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption, that's final adoption, um, as sons, the redemption of our body. Here's just something to kind of think about with regeneration. At a future time, God is going to make this world right. We are not going to see tornadoes. We are not going to have loved ones with cancer. We are not going to see people in car accidents. And we are not going to respond angrily when someone offends us. And we're not going to be broken. And we're not going to sin. And things are going to be right. And God is going to do that not just for me. He is, he is going to do that for all of creation. Okay, and that's, that is a future time. And that is something we look forward to. And our regeneration is almost like this, like this little picture of that. That's happening in my life. God opens my eyes. He's, he has made me new. And I get to live as a, as a redeemed new part of this old creation. And I get to influence those around me. I almost have my, this little pocket. And for you, it might be, you know, the, the person at work and your family. And you're looking at these friends. And I'm praying for this friend I had in college. And I'm reaching out to them. For others, it's going to be other people. But you have this little sphere And within that, God lets us experience, his children, this little pocket of this. But there's a future time coming when regeneration will be all over all of creation. It will all be made new, and we will all be given spiritual eyes, his children, and we we will see him as he truly is, but we're not there yet. And in the not yet, it's a grind of why won't this person at work be kind? Why, why does this other guy take credit? Why am I looking at this little girl with cancer? What? We live there now, but we've got this little picture and we have a future and a hope that we're looking to. So lastly, what connection is there 
with this new birth and how I live. What does it say in verse 8? Let me get back to Titus 3. What does it say in verse 8? It says, this saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may also be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. So there's absolutely no living this life saying, it's all God's grace, and I can live however I want, and I can live in rebellion, and who cares because, uh, you know, I've said I'm a Christian, so I'm going to do my own thing. There's absolutely no part of that in the Christian life. Good works truly mark the true believer's life. Um, Titus 1.16 says, They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. Here's people that say, yeah, I'm a Christian. Yeah, I follow God, and I can sin in any way I want, and who cares? He says, no. They deny him by their works. They're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. He's saying, you're not part of the kingdom. In chapter 2, verse 14, it says, this God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness... And to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Fight for it. And then the verses that I just read, I had read earlier. Verses 1 and 2. Remind them. And this is a list, as we read this, just think through where am I on this? And it's not an exhaustive list, but where am I? Because when I read this, I say, Falling short, falling short. I need God's grace. It's all God's grace. But yet as a believer, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. How are we doing on that? Remind us to be obedient. Remind us to be ready for every good work. Remind us to speak evil of no one. Remind us to avoid quarreling. Remind us to be gentle. Remind us to show perfect courtesy towards all people. That's what our holy God wants from us. It's interesting that he says remind and not teach to this group. They're not new to these believers, and they're not new to us, but they need to be reminded, and we need to be reminded, convicted, challenged. And it's not legalism if it's done because of our love for Jesus. And I would also say, do we not enjoy being around people that evidence those kind of things? We do. We do. So in conclusion, there's just two ways to respond to today's message. You might say this doesn't make sense or fit with what I feel. You might say I'm not interested. But how about a second response? And this is gotten from a a prayer that I read of John Piper's a little while back. But this short prayer, Lord, you led me to this church today to this text today. God, your mercy and love are so needed by me. May I revel in your holiness and goodness and perfection. Thank you for awakening my eyes to your salvation. Two responses. Will you look to him today? And will you revel in a theological, biblical truth that might be hard to understand that doesn't take away from its truth and it gives us just this little glimpse of, you might say, the complexity and the glory and the holiness of Almighty God and what he did that we celebrate every day of the year, but especially this time of year, the incarnation 
of his son Jesus, born in a manger, born to save his people from their sins. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is a special time of year to be part of a church service, to be part of God's people. Lord, may we not sing these songs, especially the old Christmas hymns that we've heard since we were little kids and enjoyed hearing and generally just sing this time of year. May we, may we not just sing them because we know the words so well, but may we, while we sing them, say, look at the plan of God the Father from eternity past. And look at how he's sending his spirit to indwell his children, to guide to all truth. And look at how he sent God the Son to earth to be treated poorly, to humble himself. But he became obedient to death, even death on the cross, that new life might be gained by dead people, those as all are dead in sins. May we rejoice in the opening of eyes that you give. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. And we do have, uh, we have some extra books at the back table, so you go out the door and then turn to your right. I, I think I have enough for maybe one for every family. Just a short uh, John Piper book that came out probably 15 or 18 years ago. Um, and it might be a gift that you could give to somebody else. You might already have it. It could be a gift that you could give to a coworker, to a relative, somebody else. It's not a super technical book, but it can surely help someone have their eyes opened by Jesus Christ and see him. So grab one on your way out just to the right.